You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. They offer just about every battery under the sun, from car and truck batteries to batteries for your trail cameras and rangefinders. Select retail locations even offer cell phone repair and cracked screen repair. Find a local retail location at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Honey Gear Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson. And today we are taking a step into the traditional world of archery. And we're going to be talking with Dusty Ellis of Striker Bows. Now, these guys have been around for quite a while. Uh, sometime in the 90s is when they started manufacturing uh, their bow, building their bows and manufacturing them to the masses. Or should, I should, really shouldn't say manufacturing because that makes it sound like it's built in a factory it's this is a a hands-on job right so completely opposite from how compound bows are are manufactured this is a very detail-oriented process as you will hear in this episode and the reason i wanted to talk trad a little bit today was because i am finding myself becoming more and more interested in traditional archery for several reasons but One of them is because recently I shot uh, a longbow and it was fun, period. It was fun. And uh, compound archery, you know, can be can be really fun as well. But there's something about traditional archery that I want to be. I don't know. I just want to kick it old school, I guess. I, I, I really I really don't know how to explain it. And I can I can see myself in the future jumping to traditional archery uh, maybe when I get a little older but not not right now I still have some pretty uh, big bow hunting goals I want to accomplish that I feel like I'm not quite ready to accomplish with traditional tackle so um, in this episode we talk about striker bows we talk about the traditional the traditional demographic we talk about the process the materials all the things that go into the end product which is uh, a striker bow so it's uh, something different for me and uh, i think if you are a traditional archer uh, you've been shooting longbows or recurves for a while you're going to see in my line of questioning that i'm pretty green when it comes to this kind of uh you know these kind of bows so um please take some Please forgive me for that. But today we have two commercials we got to uh, do real quick. Lone Wolf portable tree stands. Uh, please go to 
uh, their website. Take a look at all of their, uh, you know, all of their their steps, their sticks, or their 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 climbing sticks, their hang-ons, their climbers. I'm a huge fan of the of using four climbing sticks and the assault hang-on, and that gets me really anywhere that I need to go. Right. Uh, so LoneWolfHuntingProducts.com. And you can enter the discount code 9FC21, 9FC21, and that's going to save you $50 off of all orders over $200. So you're, uh, depending on what you buy, whether it's four sticks, a hang-on, a climber, uh, you're looking somewhere around an 18 to 25% discount. Uh, that's pretty good if you ask me for one hell of a product. And it, again, it's made in America, right? It's quiet. Um, it gets you in the right tree, not the, not the close enough tree, right? It gets you in the right tree, whether it's crooked or a lot of branches or, or whatever. So, uh, products.com. Uh, what else am I going to do? Oh, average conservationist. Now what's cool about this company is right off the bat, when these guys make their money right off the bat, they're giving 10% of all their revenue to a conservation organization. So that's built into their budget. Now, on top of that, these guys make uh, a lineup of apparel, right? It's, uh, it's uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It is a, uh, anyway, they make apparel, uh, a lifestyle brand, so to speak. They make uh, hats, hoodies, t-shirts, uh, and some other stuff. But I'm a, like, I'm a simple guy, and I dig their stuff. Like, I really do dig the logos, um, the, the artwork, uh, their hats. Uh, the general hat is my favorite hat right now. And uh, the, the one that I, uh, the hoodie that I wear the most is their, their camo hoodie. So I'm rocking the camo hoodie. I'm rocking the general hat, two of my favorite pieces out of that lineup. So go to theaverageconservationist.com. Take a look at all of the gear that uh, these guys have. On top of that, you can save 10% by entering the discount code NFC10. NFC10, that saves you 10%. And don't forget to check out the Average Conservationist podcast, uh, and that is in conjunction with 2% for Conservation. So those two brands, go check them out. On top of that, uh, let's get into today's episode with Dusty Ellis of Striker Bows. All right, on the phone with me today from Striker Bows, Dusty Ellis, how we doing, man? Good, man. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, I tell you what. The, the weather in Iowa keeps getting a little bit warmer and a little bit warmer and, but I'll tell you what I'll take I'll take these 60 degree days over the 50 degree days but maybe not over the 80 degree days or 90 degree days that we all know are coming right oh yeah yeah we're we're here in Ohio and it's been it's been pretty weird we had a little splash at 75 80 degrees and then the last week and a half two weeks has been 50s but then last day or two it's getting back up so yeah yeah we're getting a little bit of uh warmer weather so yeah we're all getting a little antsy to to get out but that's yeah, awesome. Ohio's unpredictable when it comes to weather yeah that, sure. i think that's the entire midwest right oh yeah yeah it's you never know right all right so um are you a turkey guy did you go out turkey hunting this year so this is the one thing I'll tell people about uh, owning at least our business, a traditional boat business. Uh, if you want to hunt a lot, don't own an archery <laughs> <laughs> because most of the time, 
when people are, are hunting, we're in the shop trying to catch up and get orders out. So I unfortunately have not turkey hunted this year. I do really enjoy it. Now I'll be the first person to tell you, uh, my dad and my older brother definitely hunt a little bit more than I do. Um, I'm in, I'm 34 and I got into hunting, you know, my whole life. Cause my dad, you know, I, I guess we'll get into it, but he, he's the one who started striker bow. So it was really started from the, the idea of, of wanting to hunt. Um, and I hunt, but not to the extent that my brother and my dad do and especially getting into the business. Uh, I think I've been doing it full time for well on and off for about 15 years, but full time, I think seven or eight years now. Um, you know, when seasons hit, we just get crazy busy. Um, Turkey season is usually our time to try to attempt to get some hunting in, but this year with, with COVID and and being backlogged, I mean, I, I think this is the busiest May that we've ever had as far as what workload we have. So unfortunately we're not going to be getting out much at all. If, if we did, it'd be like weekend warrior stuff, but in Ohio, it's kind of hit or miss. You got to really have some good spots. Um, I've done it a a few times down in in Pennsylvania on public land and God, it's it's really fun, especially the trad boat because you got to get them close. You can try a blind a lot of times you're on the ground, but yeah, it's, it's just a fun game of, back and forth and, right. and seeing what you can do. And, and I've, I've heard so many awesome stories from customers of ours of just crazy stories of how close they can get. And um, I actually have a buddy that has a camp out in um, Wyoming and I got invited to go out there. I haven't committed and done it yet. Again, comes back to the busyness, but that's a bucket list trip I need to do. They actually hunt them on the ground. They'll have the blind actually like either a fan in their hand or, or, or attach the bow yeah and do Reaping. the stock on the yeah. ground and it it seems just like a crazy rush yeah so that is on the on the to-do list and what I'll, about you i'll tell you this uh you're right when you say you know if you want to do a lot of hunting don't don't do anything really in the hunting industry because it is their busy time of year people are calling in they want you know oh man my my bow snapped uh, i need i need this new or i need this new i need a parts or whatever and and a lot of people want to get out yeah. and hunt but someone always has to stay back at the shop and you know run that while the <laughs> while the uh, uh you know everybody else is out hunting i'm lucky to where i can bust my ass like a week or two in advance and schedule mm-hmm. everything digitally and still go out yeah. and do all the hunting. I still have to do, you know, work on my phone and, and bring my laptop wherever I go. But for the most part, I'm pretty, yeah. I'm pretty lucky. I can get out and, and, and do all the big trips and stuff too. So. Yeah, that makes it nice. We, I always one day envision getting to there, but the reality is, is if we're not in the shop building, we're really not going to get any product out. So yeah, absolutely. We're definitely, uh, definitely stuck in the shop for majority of our time. All right, so Striker Bows, Trad Bow Company. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go all the way back to the beginning. When was this company founded, or or when did it start? Yeah, yeah. So the backstory of, of Striker Bows is my dad uh, worked in a machine shop um, right out of high school. Um, was always in the hunting. Actually, his his dad got him into hunting, but it was more gun hunting. Um, the the trad archery thing, I didn't always know this, but I found out, I think maybe a few years ago, my mom actually is the reason my dad got into trad bows. Um, she got him a Martin uh, recurve, uh, I think in the mid-90s, 
as a Christmas present is like a 65 or 70 pound bow, which in the nineties, that was pretty normal. Um, and him, him and one of his other buddies got really into it and it just became super competitive to them. They, they were doing all kinds of like 3d shoots, but then also hunting. And my dad had this crazy idea to build his own bow and, um, shoot a deer with it. So, you know, and this is late nineties now. I don't know. No, it was still mid nineties, but you know, there's no YouTube. There's no barely any internet. So he had to go through three, three rivers and get a VHS tape of how to build a bow, <laughs> you know, cause you got to make the press and all that. So, you know, he's sitting, he, he researched it for like a year, year and a half. Uh, and I always remember he said the first bow he ever glued up, he, he used like five times more glue than you're supposed to. And when he put it in the form, it just was like oozing out everywhere. And, and whenever you're gluing a, a bow up and you get glue everywhere, it's like the biggest no, no. So, you know, just huge learning curves like that. He, it was a D style longbow, I think with maybe a tiny bit of reflex deflex, but if anything, it was more considered a D style, which is like pretty much as traditional as you can get in our industry, at least, uh, build it, uh, just out of plain wood, spray painted it, ended up shooting a doe with it. Uh, and still to this day, you know, one of his most exciting hunts, just the nervousness and the, you know, he's basically described as, you know, the biggest buck fever he's ever had while hunting a doe. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that kind of got his wheels turning and he right away was like, all right, I built one. I want to try some new things. So started building bows for, for family members. And he's doing this out of a garage and he never, he didn't have a, a prior wood shop or had someone he knew. He just had to buy every tool by himself. Like my dad was always more of a construction worker than a, I, I, I wouldn't consider him like a wood craftsman. Like he wasn't ever building cabinets or tables, you know, if he was doing anything, he was helping his brother or people he knew build houses or, or do, you know, contractor type work. Um, but my dad's brains works really different. He's very creative. He's very, he thinks outside of the box, which can get him in a lot of trouble sometimes, but for bow building, it was like the perfect match because he just, he thought about things differently in his head. And I think actually before he even built his first bow, he had a black widow bow that he um, sanded all the way down and refinished. And I think that was part of it too. Before he actually built a bow, he got a taste of that and was like, all right, you know, I, I like this idea, but for him, he always wanted a smaller grip, a bow where the, the black widows are, are typically, you know, got a little bit more palm swell. He's like, I want something that's more of like a pistol grip. And that's kind of where his idea of, Hey, I want to try something a little different. Um, so, you know, he's building bows for family members, uh, friends of friends. The next thing he knew people he didn't know were asking, Hey, I, my buddy, had this bow i heard you make them will you make make a bow for me so he was doing it part-time and i think the big first show he he did was um it's called etar it's the eastern traditional archery rendezvous in pennsylvania he built a bunch of bows together or or built them put them together and, and then went to the show in pennsylvania and and did well and i think that's where his brain started turning like okay i think i think i need to try to take this bow thing more serious well, simultaneously, his his uh, job at the machine shop, his company was like, I don't know, 80, 90-year-old company, like pretty old, thought he had a pretty stable job. Well, the whole company ended up collapsing and, and closing. And, you know, he knew, I think, maybe a year in advance. And a big goal for him is he wanted to go back to college or go to college. He's never been to college. So he, he went to college for two, a two-year degree and during that time was working on the bows and said, all right, after my degree, I'm going to try the bows full-time. 
and kind of see where it takes takes him. So the official start of the business is in 1997, and here we are, 2021. So we're at 24 years he's been building bows. Right. I think it took him maybe five five years or seven years to actually go full time. Yeah. He's been full time ever since, and uh, yeah. So it's it's been a long journey. We started in the garage, um, and I actually started helping him. He started he built his first bow when I was in sixth grade. And when I got to high school, uh, I had a couple random jobs that I wasn't too excited about. And he said, well, if you can learn how to grind laminations and make limb veneers, because he was buying them from a supplier at the time. He's like, if you can figure out how to make them, um, that can be your summer job. So from the time I was, I think that was when I was 16, so my sophomore year. So for, from 16 years old till now, I'm 34, I, I've been building bows. Um, you know, most of the years in the early years were, were summers and winters. Um, but like I said, I, I've been helping, I think full time for seven or eight years now. So okay. it's been a, a family business for, for a, quite a while. And there's been a ton of, of transformations, but that's really where the start of everything was is yeah. in the garage. So, you know, I th- I'm, I'm taking a wild guess here and maybe yep. 1997 is a bit early, but right on the cusp of the 2000s, right? Maybe late 90s is mm-hmm. when everybody started talking about speed in the compound world, right? And mm-hmm. everybody wanted to have these lightning fast arrows and, and short arrows. And, and uh, in the compound world, I can remember uh, having an overdraw on my on my bow, on my compound. Mm-hmm. And, and all this stuff on the compound world really picking up, really gaining traction. Um did he feel that he was going to be able to make a living off trad bows as the rest of the archery uh, industry is kind of archery slash hunting industry is heading towards the compound world? Yeah, I think he, honestly, I, I don't know how far he actually thought about it, to be honest. Yeah. I think he just was more like, I really like this. It's a, it's something I'm passionate about. In his head, he just, he always, like I said, he's an outside the box thinker. I think he was more thinking, you know, if I build something that's good quality, and I can get a good reputation, uh, there's enough of a of a market that uh, I'll be able to 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 make a living doing it. Yeah. Um. But what we've seen, at least, you know, in, there's always been, for the most part guys who say, Hey, I love my compound bow. I'll never stop shooting it. I'll never stop hunting with it. But Hey, I already had a a great hunt or I had a big kill that I was hoping to have. I need a new challenge. And the, I need a new challenge guys are really, I think where we see a lot of business in the early years and still today, they might be repeat customers now or, or, or their, you know, kids or, or friends, but that is a lot of it outside of even the traditional um, core group, you know, you have guys who it's like guitars, you know, they'll have, yeah. Hey, I need a, I need a guitar from every, every trad company, you know, their version of that. Um, there's a collectible aspect to, to, to bow, uh, traditional bows. Um, but yeah, the, the compound side, I think we've always seen guys, like I said, they, they don't want to stop, but they will. Um, they want to try something different. Hey, I, I, I yeah, they yeah. want to dabble in it. Or, or we see people say, hey, I, sh- I shot traditional bows in, in Boy Scouts when I was a kid, and, and I never really got into it. And 
now that I'm older, it'd be something fun to do. Yeah. Um, so at so what, at what time started. did, uh, like the business start to take off to the point where it's like, man, I'm going to be able to make a living off this. I think it was really probably in the, I would say mid two thousands because I think 2003 or 2004 is when he, he went to full time and it was a risk, but you know, he in the early years did a lot of trade shows too. So there's a lot of, yeah, my dad's type person. If you get into a one-on-one conversation with him and, and he shows you and teaches you, um, there's a lot of genuine interest that people had no idea about. You know, they would walk up to the booth like, ah, oh, this is, I, I don't want to do this. And you know, it's been 10 minutes with them. And next thing you know, they're, they're picking out a bow and have no idea that they were even going to do it. Yeah. Uh, so he has a cool ability to do that. But even outside of it, I think, I think he just had a, a passion enough to say, Hey, you know, I can make ends meet to be able to do this. And, you know, we had a lot of low overhead at first because, you know, he, he was doing it out of the garage. And um, luckily my mom has always helped the business, but she's also worked full time outside of the business. Um, so, you know, them together, whatever they had worked out, um, they made it work. But I would say what really made the business take off even more, it was my dad and another guy part-time for, for a long time, I think till about 2012 or 2013. And that's when I, um, I was in Columbus living there. I had graduated from college uh, and I just had a normal office job and I kind of had this moment where I was like, man, what am I, you know, what, what am I doing with my life? What am I supposed to be doing? Cause I, I never really thought I would do the bows. Not that I didn't really want to, but I was like, well, you know, you get that, you're like younger twenties and you think in your head, oh, I'll figure out my own way or I'll, I'll, I'll do my own thing. I don't, I don't need to do what, what dad's doing. But then you get into the real world a little bit and you're like, man, I was doing uh, I was working for a company that made like sinks, like stainless steel sinks and tables for, for grocery stores and, and, you know, supermarkets and stuff. I was like, man, I, I mean, there's just, I didn't have it and a passion for it. And I was like, I need to be doing something that makes me feel like I have, you know, something worthwhile. So I talked to dad and at the time my brother, I have an older brother, John, who also was like, man, we need to expand the bows. So my dad was only doing custom bows, you know, one-offs. So a customer pick. would come in with a request and your dad would build it to their specs. Yep. So okay. it's only custom shop. He would have some in stock stuff. And at that time, you know, the website wasn't anything crazy. My mom actually had built it and it was just kind of a grassroots type thing where people would see it and call in and, or he'd get orders from trade shows and, and yeah, he'd build the, you know, the, the bows to order. And we had an idea of like, Hey, you know, there's these two or three different models that are really popular combos that, that are custom bows that people frequently buy we should try to think about maybe expanding to a standardized line, like a, a dealer line, so to speak. Um, that was part of the idea. I would, I would, you know, move back home and help him kind of grow that end of it. And the, that combo is what ended up being our sport and classic line. And it's changed a, a, quite a few times since then, but the origin of it was a one piece longbow that was a 60 inch bow in all Bacote wood, which is our classic and we just thought, you know, it's got a classic look. It's what my dad has built probably the most of combination is, is this Bacote combination. 
And then we said, well, let's make something else too that's a little sportier, quote unquote. So we call it the sport. So it's this dark charcoal wood, like a gray, doesn't look so traditional. And it'd be a little shorter, so it'd be a 58 inch bow. And those are the two that started the sport and classic lineup. And that's when we started um, approaching dealers and, um, you know, selling them direct as well, but then dropping the price a little bit from the custom bows. You know, it's a, you don't get as many options. You know, you can't change the length, you can't change the color stripes or the wood, but you're getting this better price and you're getting the same build quality. You know, we're building it exactly the same as a custom bow. Uh, so that kind of started in, like I said, 2012, 2000, or no, 2013. And that's where the business really started to grow Yeah. Um, to where it is now. And I think we've got, uh, I think there's five guys now that all work with us. Yeah. Um, so it's nothing crazy. It's still, you know, a, a family business. It's more niche, but I mean, I don't know if we've ever been this busy right yeah. now. Um, so, you know, things have, have really done well, but yeah, that was the start of it is that sport and classic line. Yeah. When I, when I look at my compounds hanging in the garage, I look at a manufacturing process, right? I, I look at it as a true product that has a process and steps. And, and I'm sure there is a process and step that goes into um, building your guys' bows as well. But just kind of from start to finish, roughly, how long does it actually take to build a bow? And I know you have different SKUs, but on, on average, how many, how long does it take from just materials to stringed up out the door? Yeah. So we kind of do it. We don't necessarily do it in batches, but you know, we'll, if we glue, we'll glue two or three in a day rather than we don't, you know, we build them in, in like cycles of two or three kind of come together through. Um, but as far as days, when we start a bow, you know, every time we glue, it takes a day. So when we glue in the first stripes, we let it sit in a heat box and then we let it sit its entire 24 hours. But you have the, the rise of the glue, then you glue the entire bow together. Then you glue the, the tips. So that's, that alone is just three full days. Now, it's not that much time, but it's, you know, and then you have cycles of, of each step and then when it goes to the spray booth, it actually spends a whole week in the spray booth because we have a, we actually use an automotive finish and each spray has to sit 24 hours as well. So if, if it's a rush order and we got to get it through, if we start on a Monday, it will probably be that next Friday until it's done. Okay. Um, just to how many days it has to sit through. But as far as hours, it can vary, but I mean, it's probably, uh, in the probably 15 to 20 hour range of, of, of working on them. Um, now that can depend on a lot of things of, of how you figure out time and, and, but we're doing, you know, we're, we're making the bamboo core wood, um, one at a time on our own, you know, we, we cut them ourselves and we grind them down ourselves. We're doing the veneers, um, which I can get into all that building process, but you know, right now we're running like an eight to 12 week lead time. So we're three to four months out on orders. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, we'll do them kind of in batches, you know, we'll start, we'll glue a batch and then we'll do the um, overlays and we'll get the riser rough shaped. But one cool thing about our company is my dad still is tillering and straightening the limbs of every single bow. 
um, which I can get into what that involves. But to me, it's one of the most important steps of bow building. Yeah. And it's something that's really important to us that my dad is still touching every bow. So when you get a bow from us, it's coming from him. Yeah. Now he's not doing as much of the process, but you know, the parts that he's probably the most experienced at are the most important he, he is touching and handling. So, yeah. you know, there's a, it can slow us down a little bit sometimes, but we're about quality over, over speed. You know, yeah. we're, we want to focus on keeping a high end product and, and, you know, yeah. we don't have patent protection and we don't have some innovative design. It's, it's quality versus quality. And, you know, everybody's idea of quality is, is different, but, you know, for us to charge, you know, the starting price, $750 for, for one piece bow, you know, we want that to feel like a, that, that the quality is there. Yeah. So, so let's talk about materials. Um, and, and I know you have different SKUs here mm-hmm. because the, the takedown is, is, has a aluminum riser. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So hold off on that a second, but as far as the long bows are concerned, the one piece long bows, um, what, what are the materials that you guys use, um, that go into those bows and why do you use those materials? Yeah. So the one piece bows and actually every bow that we build starts with the core wood. So the core wood is really what's going to make a bow shoot a certain way. Um, we've always done what's called action bamboo in the core. It's glued, uh, parallel with the limbs one way and then it's cut the other way so it's basically little strips that are glued together then cut Uh, and they're tapered so at one inch let's say one side towards the riser they're 70,000 thick at the end of the bow let's say it goes 30,000 30 inches it would be 40,000 at the end so every inch it tapers one thousandth of an inch so to give you a perspective a piece of paper is five thousandths roughly so, you know, a thousand per inch is, is very minuscule, but from the center of the bow to the tip, that tapering down is what really um, helps to, to give the bow the, the draw that we want, plus the speed. Uh, action bamboo also, we choose it over like a red elm, or I think some people use like a hard maple, or, or they use another thing called stable, or not stable core, foam core. Um, we've always cho- chosen the, the bamboo it's just something my dad started in the early years, really liked it, liked the quality of it, liked the shootability. It, it, they seem to feel smoother and they can be a touch faster. And this is micro levels of, of differences, but to us, that little difference makes a difference. And bamboo is typically a little bit more expensive than some other stuff, but it's worth it to us because it gives us the quality we want. So we start with action bamboo and all the cores and we grind them ourselves. So we cut them and then we grind them down to the spec that we want to make sure that our, cause that's really also how you're going to get your poundage. Okay. You know, if those tapers, there's two, <clears throat> there's, so a limb is two pieces of, of bamboo in the core. And then outside of that are the uh, parallel veneers. So whatever you actually see is the v- veneer. So the classic bow, for example, has Bacote wood. It's like a brown with dark grains in it. Uh, that's on the outside of the bamboo and those pieces are parallel 30,000 thickness. And then outside of that, there is the glass. Uh, 
and it's clear glass. So you, you know, you'll see through the glass and see the van or the Bacote. And then we actually started adding a piece, uh, a 15,000 called stable core. It's a weaved glass kind of acts a little bit kind of like carbon because it's got the weave, but it's, uh, it's glass. And that actually helps to just give a little bit of torsional strength to the limb. So when you're pulling the bow back, it helps it from, from leaning left or right when you're pulling it. So it gives it that um, torsional stability. Okay. Just a little thin 15,000 piece that we add in. So when you add that all up, it's two pieces of bamboo, one piece of stable core, two pieces of Bacote, and two pieces of glass. So it has seven layers. Okay. Uh, you know, all those layers have to be within, we try to be within a thousandth or two thousandths because all those pieces are going to dictate your poundage. So let's say you ordered a 45 pound bow. There's a formula that we have for how thick all those pieces have to be to equal the poundage. Now, sometimes like 10,000 can equal up to five pounds. So if you have seven pieces and they're all, let's say they're 4,000 too thick, that's 28,000 over, it could end up being, you know, low fifties to mid fifties when you're trying to go for 45. So from a traditional bow building standpoint, that is one of the hardest things initially to, to accomplish is your formulas and how to hit your exact poundages. Now yeah. you can sand a little bit on the glass to get the weight down. We don't really like to do that though, because you know if you have 50,000 glass in the front and 50,000 glass in the back and you sand off the front, now they're kind of uneven and it's just something we don't like to do. Yeah. Um, so that's where the, the cores start. And then <clears throat> cosmetically, you know, the, the Cody is a cosmetic wood, so you can take that out and put in the charcoal action wood, and it's not going to affect the performance much at all. You can switch it out for, you know, some other custom shop exotic woods that we have. That's where you switch out the, you know, make them look different, but the core is still the same. Right. And then as far as the, the handle, if it's Bacote or Cocobolo or Black Mind Ebony, like a, any custom stuff, that's also not really going to change the how the bow shoots so that's where the cosmetic side we can customize them without compromising the shootability or performance of the bow okay all right so with all that said then um if you is there a specific is there a specific um glue or like you can't just use elmer's glue i take it right or or no, something no, like no, that there, there's definitely a yeah there's a two-part epoxy that we use okay uh and it's like the industry standard, which I mean, I should, I could be giving away quote unquote some trade secrets, but everybody knows. I mean, EA 40 is what we use. It's, it's a smooth on product. Um, it's kind of the industry standard. Now, some people use some different stuff. We've always used it and, and I've stood behind it. And, um, as long as you mix it right and cure it right, uh, it's a glue that holds it together, but also can flex. That's the hardest part. It's always funny too when we talk to in the past we talked to finish companies say hey you know just wanted to call and see what kind of finish you're using for your bows if you want to switch I'm like well I need a finish that is hard can handle you know a ton of wear but then has to flex but also can't be gloss and they're like oh no like that's like <laughs> the hardest <laughs> you know so that's why we end up doing a, a car finish. Um, we used a couple of different finishes, but the, the stuff we use now, I mean, it's super expensive. Like it's four to five times more expensive than what we used to use per gallon. But the quality is, is what we want. This is stuff like that where, you know, there's 
20 different ways you could do it. But we found a way that said, Hey, yeah. you know, this, this meets all the quality requirements that we need, especially longevity wise. You might do a finish and five years down the road, it might look all foggy and cracked out and yeah. spots, you know, that's the hard part about bow baking sometimes is yeah. longevity wise. Is, is it going to hold up? So when I look at a, like before I before I knew anything about long bows or trad bows or whatever, mm-hmm. I would look at them and I would just be like, "Man, how do they flex? Right? How do they bend <laughs> enough to you know? It just looks like this rigid stick, right? Then you you pull mm-hmm. you pull it back mm-hmm. and and uh, you know it it acts as a, a bow. Um, what what part of the process or the materials or whatever? that you guys do allows that bow to flex without breaking? Yeah. So it really boils down to the seven layers. So each layer by itself, you can take a piece of bamboo and flex it almost enough to where the the ends will touch. Like if you take a 32 inch piece of bamboo tapered, how we do it. So 70 thousands on one end and 40 thousands on the other, you can bend it and get them to touch each other almost. Now, if you take those seven layers and put glue, the EA40 epoxy in it, that glue is hardens and also has the ability to flex and not crack or compromise. You add all that together with the fiberglass. The fiberglass is really important, and it's a special fiberglass. That there's a bunch of different fiberglass brands, but fiberglass in general, for there's a specific one for bows, and that really helps hold it all together. And then what we do is all those layers, when we glue them, you know, you got to get glue on every single part of surface of all those layers and we put it into a press that actually you know bends all the wood together and then we actually use a um, heat uh, to heat it up after it's pressed Uh, and we do like 80 pounds of pressure is what we end up doing it with and when it heats it it all solidifies the bubbles come out of the uh, out of all the areas so the glass is clear and everything's solid and then, like I said, those seven layers are able to flex because it's not just one big solid piece. Gotcha. Uh, we actually did, we, I don't remember when my brother um, had the great idea to like, let's build, let's try to build like a 150 pound bow. Cause we'd always have guys come to the shows and be like, what's the heaviest bow you got? You know, I want to see if I can pull it. And, you know, we never really had, you know, you have 65, 70 pound bows. Um, so like, let's just build a, I don't even know. We just, we had no idea how, heavy is going to be but we glued up like two to three times heavier than we typically do and so you know the pieces were like 150,000 thick on the tapers like it was like it was like a two by four it was crazy and we put it on our aluminum riser bow and we tried to pull it back literally snapped before it even got back it just wasn't you know it's just a horrible idea but it's just a fun experiment but it just shows you that you know all those thin layers together help for it to work or we didn't we tried to just do some really thick pieces and, and it, it failed but you know it would have been like i think we were it was like over 200 pounds which it was like just one of the times you're in the shop you're bored you're like let's just do something random it was complete failure but the the i guess the point is that you know all those thin layers have to work together in order to be able yeah. to flex all right uh, so properly. yeah so let me get this right alone one piece of that wood is really flexible you know, but combined 
it becomes more rigid and less flexible and the amount of thickness or layers that you put on each other dictates the poundage you know for anywhere from 30 to 60 or however many whatever the poundage is mm-hmm. on on your bows correct yep okay cool, cool. yeah that's correct yep all right so so it's just a, a little bit different of a process a little bit different of uh basically it's like an equation that you guys have come up with we want a 60 pound bow this oh, yeah. is what we have to do to create it mm-hmm. cool and the hard part is different exotics uh they all have they they might be the same uh thickness but they may spine differently even glass does it so all of our glass we have to do what's called spining which i think they do it with um actually with carbon arrows you take that piece and you hang a weight from it to see how heavy you know where it hangs at if it's a super light spine piece or heavy spine then we we sort them and then we pull from the, that pile to help get our poundages closer because you could pick up two fifty thousand pieces of glass and they might change the bow five to seven pounds just because they they're a heavier spine piece now, i don't know the exact science behind what makes something spine heavier or lighter but i know there are differences uh so that's another like a third factor to it all is not only do you have to get the thickness right and the layers right to figure out the poundage but then you got to make sure all of them are spining correctly to, to whatever your previous formulas were. Gotcha. So we're constantly keeping track of, Hey, this formula with this, we do like a one to 10 number ratio on the spinage. So say this six spine piece yielded this poundage. And you know, it's, it's maybe we overdo it sometimes, but you know, we're, the goal is always to hit poundage. Cause every time we miss a poundage on a bow, that's just another bow that it either becomes a stock bow or, um, the customer, more importantly, the customer is not getting it right away. Yeah. So, you know, we're our biggest battle at least as of late and for quite a while has been, has been lead time, you know? Yeah. People would say, well, you know, if you're, if your lead time's eight to 12 weeks, why don't you just hire more people? Well, the hard part is, is that, um, you know, we want to keep the quality. We want to yeah. make sure you're getting what you're, what you paid for. And a lot of that is experience and, yeah knowledge of knowing hey this is what is acceptable this this is not yeah you know to get our end product well and i i don't i don't look at your product like a a a manufacturing line or a process line type Mm -hmm. product where Mm -hmm. one guy does this and then passes it on to this and and that may be how it's done but it's not like you're building uh microwaves uh, where you know you you can write a process you know there's a lot of experience that comes with using your hands, knowing how much glue to use, knowing when to stop, uh, stop sanding, knowing, you know, shooting the bow, just like all these things that you just can't teach someone in a day to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's the training process is pretty, it just takes a long time. Yeah. Um, and it's weird too. It's, it's not like normal woodworking. It's, there's a lot of funky things that, that are not, as intuitive um, as, an, as a normal woodworking process. Yeah. Now, there, there's definitely a lot of similarities, but there is a couple of unique things that you have to do when you're building a bow. And, um, you know, we take a lot of pride in what we do. And, and part of that is, is making sure we're getting good quality out. And sometimes that means the lead times, unfortunately, could be longer than we would hope it to be. But 
Um, we don't want you to buy something, get it in three weeks and be like, man, this is not what I ordered. Absolutely. All right. So that's kind of, that's kind of the, the recipe for the longbows. Now walk us through, cause this is kind of a, a, a unique idea. Walk us through the takedown model. You know, you got this aluminum recurve or this, um, aluminum riser with limbs on it. Were you guys the first to market with this product or did you learn about this process or this, uh, way of doing, you know, recurves and longbows, uh, through somebody else? No, I I don't think we were definitely the first, uh, I guess I'll give you the whole backstory of, of the takedowns and where they originated and where they are today to kind of help make sense of everything. Um, my dad had always pretty much focused on one piece bows in the early years. And, you know, he had a lot of requests for takedown bows. Um, but he kind of wanted to perfect, so to speak, the, the styling of, of the one piece bow. You know, we had a D style long bow to start. Then he had a bow called the striker 2000, which was a slight reflex deflex. Then he had a one piece recurve called the striker. I think Oh one recurve. It's a one piece recurve. Then he had a bow called, um, it's like a 54 inch bow. I can't remember the name of that one. It's a real aggressive reflex deflex. And then um, the slapstick, which is another reflex deflex with a straight handle. And then the stinger, which is what we build now. It's a reflex deflex, but it has a forward handle. So we had five designs before he kind of got onto, hey, this is the style that I want to stick with. And he, for the longest time, he'd still offered those first five models. And I finally said, hey, we can't, if we know this, this Stinger model is, is, is the one we really um, like as far as shootability and, and, and think that it may, may be a step above the other ones, let's not continue to offer the other options. Um, so we decided to, you know, go away with them. But simultaneously, he was working on takedown models. And I think some of the takedowns intertwine with those first five. But, you know, he designed the takedown model off of that forward handle design one piece bow. Okay. So that became the stinger custom. Now the stinger one piece and the stinger custom now are the same model or limb style and form as the sport and classic. So that's where they, they rooted from is, is the stinger gotcha. one piece and the stinger takedown. I have a question um, real so quick before you yep. go any further. What does reflex deflex mean? I don't understand that. Yeah, no, no, you're fine. So reflex deflex, and I may get this wrong because I, I sometimes get confused by it. The easiest way to, to, to know what a reflex deflex is, is is when it's strung up, it looks more like a triangular shape. So if you go to, on a website, for example, go to like the Sport and Classic uh, one-piece longbow, if you look at the photo of, of one that's strung up, you can see that it, it has a slight triangular shape. Yes. So... Um, there's a basically the limbs flexing. Um, it's just got a slight curve in it. So when you do string it, it that tip comes back to that triangular shape where the style before that was a D style. So there wouldn't be that triangle. It, the, the limb would basically go straight up and curve over to where it would look like a, a reverse D when it was strung. Okay. Now we take it a step further. If you look at the riser section of that reflex deflex, the handle actually is going forward a little bit. Yep where some people do where the actual handle section is flat. So it'd be straight up and down. And then the curve happens after the triangle, you know, the triangular shape. So it'd almost be like a, 
like a, a slight D. This one's more, like I said, the riser section's a little shorter. <clears throat> That's another part of it. So on our one-piece bow, the riser section's only 16 inches, where a lot of people might do 18 inches or um, 19, um, which gives you more working limb. So if you have more working limb, that means the bow's going to end up drawing a little smoother when you're pulling back. And also when you shoot, the shock, quote-unquote, of the bow is going to absorb more and in, a, in more of a triangular shape instead of being all flat in the front. If it's flat in the front, all that, all that shock will absorb right into that flatness and, and shake the bow. Okay. Um, and it can all be subtle differences, but that's kind of where the reflex deflex, I'm not even sure who named it that. It's just a, a phrase that has been used in the industry as long as I can remember. Um, so yeah, when I say reflex deflex, it's it's really referring to more of this triangular shape bow. Okay. Um, Next question: What is the difference? Mm-hmm. And, and we're gonna we're talking about these takedowns, you know, because you have the one piece long bow, but then you also have the takedown recurve and the takedown long mm-hmm. bow. What is the difference mm-hmm. for? And I know these are some very basic questions, but what's the difference between a yeah. recurve and a long bow? Yeah. So. Uh, the biggest thing with the recurve is at the very, I'd say the last 20%, 30% of, of a limb, the recurve actually curves back to make sort of like a hook. And to uh, to, cla- like, to classify a bow as a recurve, the string has to actually be sitting on the limb. Okay. So if you look at a recurve bow, the, the string's actually sitting on the limb, and there's a groove on the back of the limb yep. for the string to sit in. On a longbow, it doesn't actually sit on the limb. That's the biggest sig- signifier between the differences. You know, I guess a reflex deflex longbow. I guess for like a lot of competition stuff, like overseas, for example, if if the string isn't sitting on the limb, it makes it not a recurve. But the reflex deflex longbow is very very close to a recurve. Okay, it's it's. It's subtle differences, but it's enough for some people to to be one way or the other. Okay. But if I was to hand me a bow blindfolded, it it's not night and day difference. Let's just say that. Okay. Is there when it comes to the difference between a recurve and a longbow? Is there any functionality or shooting differences? that come with that like uh, necessary form or the performance of the actual bow no so so for us when my dad designed the the takedown bow he actually designed the longbow limbs first and the reason why that's important is because he got that model to work and then he designed a recurve limb that fit into that same spectrum so you can take the longbow limb off our takedown and put on a recurve limb and the bow will still shoot so there's no real curve between as far as and i don't know if there fully is in the industry as far as a major difference between you might change your style a little bit but going from longer the recurve in my opinion at least there's not a huge difference but for us my dad wanted to design the longbow first and then design a recurve that felt more like a longbow and the, the big characteristics to a longbow is that they're typically known to be a little bit quieter and a little more forgiving because when you're pulling the bow back, the whole limb is working on a longbow when you pull it. So that whole limb is, is pulling back. Where a recurve, that hook starts to pull back straight, and then the whole limb starts. So there's a quote-unquote sort of loading 
when you're pulling back on gotcha. a recurve. Gotcha. Now that different that might be very minute, but you know some people like to focus on that and say, hey. Uh, and then also when you get back to your, the end of your draw, sometimes a recurve can start to stack. So every inch that you pull, maybe the last inch or two of the pull, the poundage per inch uh, jumps up. So then it feels like you're hitting a wall. Gotcha. Let's say at 27 inches, that last inch, it feels just really heavy. So you're hitting what people would call a sort of wall. Um, the longbow is supposed to be a little smoother in that aspect. But in return, the recurve is supposed to be a little bit quicker, you know, faster shooting. Okay. Now, my dad's system is trying to bridge those gaps. So the, the longbow ends up being almost as fast as a recurve. And the recurve ends up being almost as smooth and especially as quiet as the longbow. Okay. Uh, that's a huge, that was one of the most important parts of my dad was, I want to make this bow quiet. Yeah. And that was what he really strived for. Okay. All right. So, um, do you guys make your own strings too, or do you buy them from, uh, uh, somebody else and put them on your bow? For the longest time, my dad did make strings. Uh, and I think maybe I think it's been four or five years now. Uh, we switched to a, a supplier to help us out because our philosophy was if the supplier and us agree on a formula for the string, as far as how many twists we want, the material, um, the loophole size, um, then it's something we could, we could partner with someone and say, Hey, you know, um, why don't you provide the strings for us and we can focus on the stuff in house, um, that we can only do. So gotcha. yeah, we, we haven't been producing the strings and I kind of consider our strings. Like I consider like when you buy a guitar, like, you know, guitar comes with a string on it or, uh, you know, guitar strings. A lot of people, the first thing they'll do is take the string off and put their own string on it, like a, a certain brand. So we don't always recommend that. We, we try to give someone our best guess at what we think is the best string for our bow. But I definitely know a lot of people who say, you know, hey, I have this guy that makes them for me or I make my own. Um, the hardest part is, is, is making sure customers don't get too low of strands. So we, we like to see 18 strands or 16 strands um, on a string. You know, I know there's people who go lower than that. Um, it can be harder on the bow especially harder material as well. Right. Uh, stiffer string materials can be a little harder on the bow. Now we do phenolic on both. Actually we do G10 now on the G10 on the front of the tip and the back of the tip. So it's dual um, support. Yeah. Um, so it, it could technically could handle some harder um, materials, but you know, as a manufacturer, we're trying to make sure people are staying within guidelines and, and giving them the best, bow we can give them um so you know the string that we send is is more of an even um type string where it's not going to be the fastest string you ever shot but it's going to be smooth going to make the boat really quiet and it's going to definitely deaden things up and we always send woolly whisper silencers with the with the bow that helps deaden and quiet down the bow as well without compromising too much of the speed so those factors really help but yeah as far as making them know we've had a a supplier make them for us okay last you know i think five six years and then as far as the takedown longbows are concerned um it looks like that you keep the riser and as you you grow or you know get older you want to go down on in weight or go up in weight then you're you're able to get new limbs for that correct yeah just replace the limbs yeah so 
Yep. So our limb system is universally interchangeable within striker pose. So you can you can get longbow limbs, recurve limbs. You can switch from a 14 inch riser to a 16 inch riser to make it shorter or longer by two inches. And you can even go to the aluminum riser, the RK1. And the idea, yeah, is you can. I have a lot of people who will say, hey, in the summertime, if I'm shooting 3D targets and I'm gonna no, I'm gonna shoot, you know, 60 targets in a day. I'll get out a 35 pound set of limbs and, and just have fun and, and not worry about, you know, fatiguing myself out. But then let's say I'm going on a trip out West or, you know, whitetail hunting and I want to be 50 pounds. I can just unbolt. All it is is it's two pins and a bolt. You just un, unscrew the, the Allen bolt, um, wiggle the limb off, put the next set on. And the brace sites actually stay the same between all the limbs. Now you might have, you know, some tweaking. Every limb's a little unique, but the idea is that they're all, you know, within the same threshold. Yeah. Okay. Which has been pretty cool. All right. Yeah. That's uh that's definitely unique. Um, all right. So I want to talk about different, some different scenarios here. Uh, I was at uh-huh. a barbecue a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. And, and so this guy pulls out his longbow and we start to shoot it. And I am having a blast. Like it's like traditional archery is just so much fun. And yeah. I, now I'm interested in uh, picking mm-hmm. something up, whether it's uh, you know one of you, like uh, a longbow or a recurve or something in the the you know something like a takedown where that has the adjustable limbs or whatever. All right, so my question to mm-hmm. you is: just starting out, I'm, I've I've hunted compound my entire life. I'm ready to take uh, a jump into more of a traditional route. What direction would you point me from the products that you offer? Okay, absolutely. So what I would do is I, I first would ask you a few questions. Okay. Um, so my first question would be is what poundage do you currently shoot? If you shoot a compound bow, what, what poundage do you currently shoot? 70, 72. Okay, so in 70-pound range. Uh, do you know what your draw length is on your compound? Uh, like 29 and a half, 30. Okay. And then... Um, would you consider yourself pretty strong? Like you, when you're shooting your, your compound, do you have any issues with fatigue or is 70 pounds? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't easy decently. Yeah. I don't, I don't have any issues now. If, depends on what time of okay. year, right? Like right now I'm doing yeah. the bare minimum. Once I get closer to the fall, I'll be mm-hmm. shooting a lot more. So, mm-hmm. you know, whatever that means. Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, if you were to get a trad bow, would you be looking at doing more recreational or would you actually want to, to, to be able to hunt with it? Yeah, I would be, I would be wanting to hunt with it. Okay. And then what style of hunting? Like do you typically, would it be like a public land hunt? Would you be hunting on the ground, a tree stand, or would you have property that you have where you, you're going to go to the same tree stand every time? Yeah. Or are you going to be hunting in a blind? Yeah. No, all, all of the above. Yeah. No blind, but. I take multiple. Okay. I take multiple trips out west every year. Uh, spot and stock out mm-hmm. west. Tree stand hunt in mm-hmm. in uh, Iowa. Okay, and then when you're tree stand hunting, is it random? Yeah, it's spots? Run, like the running gun. Set? Yeah, you set and yep. okay. So uh, the reason why I ask all those questions is that kind of helps me figure out what you're all wanting the bow to be able to do, which can. Now, all the bows can pretty much do the same thing. Like, you can make any bow work. Now, there's the hardest part is the poundage. Like, you got to be legal. That's a number one for, for any hunting. Uh, every state is different. 
I know like Pennsylvania, for example, the minimum hunting is 35, but Ohio is 40. I think like Alaska, for example, I think is 50, you know, so every state's different. And also obviously what animal you're hunting, you know, if you're going to be hunting elk and you're, instead of, you know, whitetail, you're going to want a different setup, especially your broadhead setup, your spine's going to change on your arrow. So, you know, those are all factors you want to try to figure out ahead of time. So then you don't want to own four bows for each one. Right. Now you can, but the idea is, well, if I'm starting out with it, I want to try to get a bow that's going to help cover most of the ground for me. So if I try to go one way or the other, I know it, it can work. And if it needs to change, it's very little change. Um, so initially I would say right away, a 45 pound bow is going to be where your starting point would be. Now, some people may jump up to 50 or even 55 knowing they can handle the weight. Uh, the, the worst thing you can do with the traditional bow is getting is to get too much weight. If you have too much weight, you can develop bad habits, which you can get, you know, target panic or you get quick with your release. So you're not getting all the way anchored. You can get fatigued longer. So you can't practice or, or sorry, fatigued quicker. So you can't practice as much. So trying to find that poundage that's comfortable um, is key. Now, if you're going out west and you know you want to eventually say you want to elk hunt, you know, 50 to 55, you definitely want to be at probably leaning more towards 55. If you're going to whitetail or turkey hunt, you know, you can go as low as the low 40s. So 45 to 50, I would say, um, it will get you there. But if you know you're leaning towards probably doing an elk hunt sooner than later, then I'd try to lean you towards 50 to 55 on poundage. Now, that's step one. Then as far as uh, another factor, sorry, too, is your jaw length. So on a compound, you're 29 and a half to 30 inches. When you go from a compound setup to a traditional setup, you're going to lose between an inch to inch and a half in your jaw length. Because instead of being back, you know, towards your jaw or, you know, pulled out further, when you shoot a traditional bow, you're going to curl in just a tiny bit. Now, everybody's different. And, and some may argue that it's not fully true. But to me, from what I've seen, you know, you you typically lose a little bit of length rather than gain. So, you know, let's just say <clears throat> from 30, you go to 20, 28 and a half, 29. So you're still, you know, 45 pound bow is going to be probably 46, 47. It may, may gain a pound or two because you're going to, you're going to, or maybe, maybe a little more, maybe two and a half pounds since you're going to be a little over an inch. Um, so you're going to be at a good threshold there. <clears throat> but then also um, the next factor would be the draw length. Now, if you know you're you're not going to blind hunt, but you're going to be spot and stock, you're going to be running and gunning with the tree stand set up, then you probably – now, this is up for debate as well. You probably want to lean towards a 60, maybe over a little bit um, than a 62. Now, a 60-inch is going to give you a little bit more clearance, obviously, in a tree stand or even on the ground. But it may not be as smooth of drawing as the 62 that's where people bounce back and forth. Well, I want the smoothest possible drawing bow. But here's what we do with our takedown. It's a little different. Um, our 60-inch bow has our 14-inch riser. So your riser to limb ratio is 14-inch riser, then the limbs make it 60. When you jump up to 62, the limbs stay the same, but the riser goes to 16. But when you stretch it from 14 inches to 16 inches, it stretches uh, – what do you call it? It's a scaled stretch. So it doesn't stretch front to back at scales. So the, the actual limb ratio is still the same as far as limb to riser ratio. You're gaining, you know, two inches. 
So the smoothness of the draw, the feel is there. Um, the 14 inch riser is a little bit smaller. It's, it's a, one of the smallest risers we, we build. So coming from the compound world too, a smaller riser may become more comfortable to you. That's a huge factor of our bows. <clears throat> sorry. Is the, uh, the smoothness or not, uh, not the smoothness, sorry. The, uh, the the size of the actual grip you know you're coming from a small pistol grip style or a um, you know smaller grip style moving over to the trad world it's going to be familiar to you which familiarity is everything when it comes to switching over to something um so that may be a factor but some people you know they'll shoot the bigger 62 inch riser and be like oh this is still small because i i'm not used to anything or not um biased towards anything so you know it's tough to, to decide an actual bow that's going to fit you the most perfect, but you can see how you can narrow things down pretty quickly. Um, you know, if you went 45 to 50, if you're leaning more towards whitetail, 50 to 55, if you're leaning more towards, you know, an out west elk hunt. You could go 60 if you want to be more run and gun, smaller grip style. Go 62 if you want the extra smoothness and a little bit fuller grip. Yeah. Um, and then from there, it could, you know, yeah. So, so you're you're saying as of right now, um, based off of every, all the information that uh, I gave you, a 60 inch, uh, a 60 inch somewhere around 45 pounds would would get me yeah. would get me where I want to be. Uh, now, if I was a seasoned professional, you know, a, a seasoned in mm-hmm. in archery, uh, as far as uh, mm-hmm. traditional recurve. And I want to bump up and I want to like, Hey man, I want to go big. I want to go, I want to do it the most OG way possible. What, what direction would you point <laughs> me in at this point? Well, here's the cool thing about traditional bows. Uh, you can get a 45 pound bow and 20 years from now, you can still be shooting a 45 pound bow, whether you're at a beginning beginner's level or what you would consider a, an expert level. The poundage <clears throat> isn't, you know, getting to a super heavy poundage isn't always ideal because shot placement is everything. If I have a 45 pound bow, you have a 60 pound bow and I put a perfect shot on something and and you miss, you know, you're outside the spectrum, you know, I'm still going to get reap the rewards. Um, you know, it's, and especially to a 45 pound bow, you can get a really good arrow set up, you know, get 150 to 200 grains out front on your broadhead weight, um, get your length, arrow length, and spine correct. A, that bow's going to be super quiet. They're not going to hear it coming. And B, you're going to get a ton of force and uh, you know penetration off that 45-pound bow. It might not be the fastest thing you ever shot, but if you practice and practice and know what that arrow's going to do, then you're, you're off to the races. Now, if you went to 60 pounds, let's say, you didn't practice as much because you're too fatigued to, to shoot consistently, yeah, you've got the super fast bow that, or faster bow, I should say, but you don't put a good shot on it. It's not going to matter, you know, all that, you know, that poundage difference. So um, going to what I would say a seasoned or OG level really doesn't change a lot. Gotcha. Maybe increasing the poundage, but I mean, I've been shooting bow my whole life and I don't go over 50 pounds on a bow. Yeah. Now, if I was to do a special hunt, maybe um, like Ted, that uh, my buddy that works for us, he's always shot a 60 pound bow. But for him, it's it's a comfort level. He likes to to be able to get off that string. You know, a heavier bow is going to give you more tension on the on your fingers, which is going to give you a better release. So that for some people is a factor. But 
I wouldn't put that as the reason to go heavier. Um, you know, 45 to 50 pounds is pretty much what we sell the majority of, um, anymore. I, I, it's really sad, but I I hate when I hear someone call and they say, Hey, you know, I've, I've, I've always shot a heavier bow. I'm having shoulder problems or I got shoulder surgery. Um, do you have any 35 pound bows in stock? I need to rehab, you know, that's always a sad story. You hate to hear it. You don't always know it's going to happen and you can't predict it, but you know, it sucks when someone's, you know, shot a heavy bow for a long time and end up having shoulder problems because of it yeah. down the road. Yeah. Um, so that's another factor too, you know, trying to shoot what's comfortable because when you're at your full draw, that's when the weight's the heaviest. It's not like yeah. a compound where you know, you're getting through that heavier part and you're holding, you know, a lot less at your full draw. Um, but and also, too, we didn't go over longbow recurve. Um, when I tell people about the difference or what they're looking for, if you're a beginner, it doesn't fully going to make a huge difference to you. The factor that I say is the recurve is going to probably be a touch faster. The longbow is going to be a touch smoother and maybe a touch quieter, but they're both going to be quiet and smooth and fast. You know, there's not a huge difference between them. It's more just, uh, you know, preference. And comfort comfort is everything you yeah know, if someone in their head says you know what i just always wanted to shoot a recurve bow then get a recurve because that's more important to me is if you're confident and you're you're comfortable yeah um, i think of the same thing with with uh, i always compare it to golf clubs you know if someone's hitting a hybrid iron that's real fat and you know it's not what you think of when you think of an iron but they're hitting it well then and they you hand them an iron they can't hit it it could be just a mental thing but you know, whatever helps them to have confidence and to be consistent is, is super important. So yeah. longbow and recurve, you know, there's not an exponential difference that's going to make you or break you. Yeah. All right. So one of the last questions I, I have uh, for you is mm-hmm. there's a guy like me who's potentially looking for a recurve or a longbow or, you know, wanting to break into this trad life. Um or, mm-hmm. or whoever, why should they consider striker bows? Here's your pitch. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, the biggest thing for us is, you know, we try to do things high quality, but we also have always done what my dad likes to call it. You know, small and sleek. So, not only are our our risers small and sleek, but the limbs themselves. Um, are a lot more thin, I, I, like less or more narrow than most bows. But what that does for you is it helps to keep the bow quieter, helps increase the speed, but also keeps them super smooth. And the way that my dad styled them, they still stay torsionally straight. They still, um, you know, last. But also um, there's a lot of versatility. So you can shoot a a small risered um uh, wood bow and switch over to our RK1, which is a pistol grip or a torque freestyle grip in a traditional bow, which has been a huge seller and a very um, cool piece that to have in our arsenal. You know, that's I guess one thing I didn't mention to you is if if a compound grip is your most comfortable feeling bow, you could go with the RK1 and and be right in that world. And also it has ammo mounts, so you could put. Um, if you wanted to shoot the site, you could. The, the option is there. If you and then at any point you say, you know what, I'm done with the site. I want to shoot instinctive, or I want to shoot gap shoot. Gapping is where you use like the tip of the arrow to help, um, you know, your shot placement. Um, th- those are all options. Uh, so there's a ton of versatility and options that we have. 
but you can also dumb it down to the simplest form of, hey, I'm just going to knock a, an arrow, shoot or at the shell, and not have issues. Um, you know, there's there's factors that um, you know you have to think about, and really, uh, for us, it just is quality, it's a uh, consistency, and also you know customer service. You know, we're a family-owned business. Uh, if you call, we're going to answer. You're going to talk to one of us. You're not going to, you know, be put on hold and talk to some random person has no idea what they're talking about. Um, That's a huge part of it. And also just, um, you know, our company history. You know, we've we've been around for 24 years, been building those for a long time. And, uh, you know, we got a lot lot of uh, uh, reputation and and years uh, behind us. So, you know, that's something that uh, we'd like to um, put out there. But also, um, you know, just the options of bows that we have, it can get very complex. But at the same time, in the simplest form, you know, we only have a few models that um, you can choose between. Now, you can change them a bunch, but, you know, you can get very simple with with your setup, which is, I think, the biggest important part of Triad is not overcomplicating things, just getting back to the roots of, hey, we're just shooting and, uh, you know, shooting the target or you and the hunt. Right. Absolutely, man. Well, hey, I tell you what, man, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day. I know you guys are busy over there trying to get bows out the door, but yeah. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on the podcast and talk with us about Striker. Yeah, no problem, Dan. I appreciate you having us, and hopefully uh, if you're ready to pull the trigger someday, just let me know, and we'll, we'll get you fixed up with something. That's for sure. 